Apparently there's some sort of sporting event going on this afternoon. I don't know if you've heard about that, um, but we always do an annual unscientific Grace Fellowship poll. So uh, for the big game today, who is uh, pulling for the Panthers? <laughs> wow. Anybody pulling for the Broncos? And how many of you do not care? <laughs> Once again, the do not cares win. But we have our own team coming next year. Who knows, right? Then we might start to care a little bit more. Um, so I need, to, I need to let you know up front that um, today's sermon is not going to be good. Um, it's just, it's helpful to dispel any kind of myths about that right at the beginning. It's not going to be good, and the reason it's not going to be good is because there's this thing going around social media that says something to the effect of worship is more important than a football game, so uh, go to church on Sunday, and if your pastor makes a great point, dump Gatorade on his head. And then when I got up here, I noticed that he's got a Gatorade thermos right there. So I'm going to do the very best I can to keep this uninspiring, insignificant, <laughs> and boring. <laughs> That's an overtime victory. That's an even bigger deal, right? All right, I gotcha. So um, last year, if some of you can like rack your brain and remember that far back, last year in the in the late summer, early fall, uh, we had a sermon series called Faith Matters. You remember that? We talked about faith. There were 17 sermons in that series, and we covered faith from every kind of direction we could possibly cover it, talked about what does it mean to be people of faith, and talked about how significant faith is in the Christian life. And then um, starting really the end of 2015 and so far moving into 2016, we've been talking about hope. Um, so we've covered faith and we've covered hope, and uh, those are two of the absolute most significant pillars of the Christian life. There, the, the Bible basically teaches that, that um, faith is a, the the mark of the Christian, that apart from faith, it is impossible to be a Christian. Apart from faith, it is impossible to know God. Apart from faith, it is impossible to please God. So any of the things that we talk about in life that have nothing to do with faith really have nothing to offer us, right? And we talked about hope, and we said that hope is such a significant part of the Christian life that it should be the thing that people notice about us so that in First Peter, Peter tells us, People should notice the hope in your life and be so amazed by it that they should ask you to give an explanation for the hope that is within you. And so we talked about hope from that standpoint as well. Um, and those are two of the absolute most prominent pillars of the Christian life. And, and yet, when you read Paul's writings, especially in 1 Corinthians, he talks not about one pillar, not about two pillars, but about three pillars of the Christian life. And uh, he says that there are three distinct things that are going to abide forever, they're never going to go away, and they're absolutely foundational to everything that we call Christianity. And so unless we have all three of those pillars in place in our life, we're somehow living something that is less than biblical Christianity. Does that make sense? And so I want you to take your Bibles and I want you to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. It's in the New Testament, right after Romans. And go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, very famous uh, chapter in the Bible, and I want you to go to 1 Corinthians 13, and we're going to read for today just the last verse of 1 Corinthians 13. 
where Paul has been describing love in great detail, and then he comes to the end, and he sums it up in verse 13 by saying this, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So even amongst these three pillars of the Christian life that are absolutely indispensable, there is one, according to Paul's writing, that stands out even above the rest, that love is so important, so significant, so indicative of what it is to be a Christian, that apart from love, there would absolutely be nothing for us to talk about, because God is love. So for us to be people who are followers of God, love is absolutely essential to the equation. And we have to understand a little bit about love, because as central as faith is to the Christian life, it's not the most central thing. As essential as hope is to the Christian life, it is not the most essential thing. Of the big three, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these things that will last forever is love. And you say, well, if that's the greatest of these three, uh, why did you save it for last? If it's the greatest of these three, why just spend 17 weeks on faith and another seven weeks on hope, and now you're just going to give us a little blurb about love for the next two weeks? Uh, the reason is this. You have heard countless sermons on love already. For, for you to be a Christian, to even live in a society like ours that is so influenced and has been uh, historically so influenced by Christian thought, you have been introduced to the concept of biblical love again and again and again, unless somehow you've just had your head in the sand. You don't have to have been in church to know that the Bible has some very specific things to say about love and how essential love is and how central it is to the Christian message. And so what I, what I don't want to do is I don't want to just sort of re-preach a bunch of stuff that, that you have already got figured out. I don't want us to just go, go through and do the typical sort of picture of, you know, what is love and, wh and why is God love and what does that mean for us? Um, we're going to get into some of that, but I want us to think about it uh, in maybe some ways that we haven't thought about it before, because since love is that important, we need to understand it. And so we better start by trying to understand exactly what love is. And again, many of you are already sitting there going, well, this is time for me to go ahead and check out. It's time for me to get on my phone and answer some emails, because I know what love is. I'm not stupid. And I've already heard about all this stuff. I've, I've heard 1 Corinthians 13 read so many times. Every wedding that I go to, love is patient, love is kind, blah, 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 blah. I've got it, right? I don't need to hear all of that stuff again. Um, and many of you are already predicting some of what I'm going to say today in talking about love from a biblical perspective. Because you've already heard sermons preach on this subject. You have heard preachers say again and again and again that there are these three major Greek words, right, that are translated as love. And that of those three words, there's um, uh, philo, which is uh, where the, the city Philadelphia gets that from philo or phileo, depending on the, the um, use of the word. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And, and that phileo is the concept of Love the way you love a brother. You've heard that before, right? And you've heard there's another Greek word for love, which is eros, from which we get our word erotic. And that has to do with romantic love. It has to do with male-female love. It has a sexual connotation to it. 
and that's another word for love in the Greek. And you've heard that there is a third word for love in the Greek, which is uh, a love that is more selfless, that is uh, more sacrificial, and is, is indicative of the kind of love that God has for us. And that word is what? Oh, you already saw it on the screen. <laughs> um, so you're, you're already familiar with all of that kind of stuff. Raise your hand if you've heard that before. Those three words are not new to you. All right. Um, well, you've heard wrong. It's kind of like that, but it's not exactly like that. And you may have heard it from me. And so I want to take some time to, to clarify and specify a little bit more about this concept of agape and what it means and how it relates to those other words. Uh, there are not really three types of love. That's a misnomer. <clears throat> in fact, in the Greek, there are several other words that are translated as love in English as well. Um, these are just the three most prominent, the three most famous. And the word agape, by the way, is the one that is used th throughout the New Testament almost exclusively. Uh, eros is not even used in the New Testament, and phileo is used only in a couple of places. So this agape word is, the, is sort of the central word, but they are not describing three types of love. There is only one type of love. The problem is that the English language is so general, and most other languages are much more specific, specific, especially ancient languages. So both Greek and Hebrew, which is what we primarily have in the original uh, transcripts of the Bible, those, those languages are much more precise. And so, for instance, these three prominent words that are translated love, the reason they're translated love is not because they all mean the same thing. They all mean different things. The reason they're translated love is because we call everything love around here. We, we, we love that word. We throw it around all the time. Um, and we say things like, I love my wife. And then we use the same word to talk about our feelings toward bacon. <laughs> and usually when we talk about bacon, it's with a better glimmer in our eyes. <laughs> We, we love our favorite television show and can't miss an episode. We also love our favorite team, and we love to go bowling, and we, you know, we love the smell of flowers, and we love, we love, we love, we love. All of those things mean something different, and we understand them based on the context, right? And we understand that when someone says, you know, I love the UCLA Bruins, they don't mean the same thing as I love my son. If I could possibly love my son as much as I love the UCLA Bruins, that would be... <laughs> amazing, right? We know it doesn't mean the same thing. So in Greek, they actually have different words for these things. And, and they're not sort of held hostage to these uh, obscure words that could mean anything. Because no one believes that when you say, I love pancakes with extra syrup, that you mean the same thing as you mean when you come to worship and raise your hands and sing, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Nobody thinks it means the same thing, and yet it's the same word. And in Greek, they do us a favor by giving us specific words that mean specific things. So we're not talking here about three types of love. The word that should be used to translate in English as love is agape. Now, for example, we're all familiar with John 3.16, right? And in John 3.16, it says, For God has such warm feelings for the world that... Is that not what it says? 
No, it's, it says, for God felt such chemistry with the world, right? That's not what it says. It says, for God had such a crush on the world. That's not what it says. What does it say? For God so loved the world. That's agapeo or agape. He so loved the world that he did what? Gave his only begotten son. He so loved the world that he sacrificed. This idea of love is, is part and parcel with the idea of sacrifice. It's part and parcel with the idea of selflessness. And so when we talk about that famous verse, John 3.16, I want to suggest that you may have been thinking about that verse all wrong for years. When we read it, we tend to think that it means that God had such a warm emotional attachment to people that it so broke his heart to see us lost and without God that he went ahead and made a sacrifice. That's not what it means. The sacrifice is the love. It's not that God was motivated by this churning in his belly and in this feeling in his gut that he just couldn't bear to have us be without him. It's that his nature is love, and he always acts in love, and that means he always does what is best to bring him glory and to take care of the people who are the objects of his love. But the important thing to remember here is that he doesn't love because of the object of his love. When we think about love in a human standard, we think of it that way. Just, just picture yourself when it, whenever it was maybe the first time that you, quote unquote, fell in love. And remember the feelings and when you, when you looked at that person, you just couldn't get that person out of your mind and you just thought this person just means so much, there's nothing wrong with this person. I just can't believe how great this person is. If only I could somehow have a relationship with this person, it'd be the greatest thing ever. And you're so motivated by the, by the beauty and the personality and the chemistry that you have with this person that it causes you to want to get involved in their lives and do things for them and be nice to them and all that kind of stuff. We're driven by our emotional connection and that causes us to act in a certain way, which it could be argued is rather selfish. We're acting in this way toward this person because they bring so much to our lives and we so want them to be closer in our lives and we so want them to love us back and therefore we treat them better or differently then we might treat somebody else. That is so far from what agape means. That is so far from the love that God has for us. And so the most famous verse in the Bible does not mean that God had this, this crush on us. And therefore, based on that emotion, he went and did something about it. It is saying God so loved the world that he gave. The giving is the loving. In, in his nature as God, who is love, he gives. So love involves emotion, but it's not emotion. And love involves attraction, but it's much more than attraction. And, and love may involve affection, but it's not affection itself. And we have to get this straight, or everything else that I have to say about love this week and next week is going to be misunderstood, misconstrued, and misapplied. I love the way it's described. There's a, there's a um, book in my office called Vine's Expository Dictionary. I'm sure most of you have read it. And uh, 
It's a, it's a Bible dictionary. It's about this thick. And um, if you look up in Vines, um, a definition of this agape love, let me just give you a blurb of what it says. Love can be known only from the actions it prompts. God's love is seen in the gift of his son, but obviously this is not the love of complacency or affection. That is, it was not drawn out by any excellency in its objects. Does that make sense? That's what makes it so different from what we think of when we think of love. It was an exercise of the divine will in deliberate choice made without assignable cause, save that which lies in the nature of God himself. He didn't do what he did because there was a cause that he looked at us and said, wow, I can't be without you. He did what he did for us because he is love. He's the cause. And we have to get that straight or we're not going to understand the love of God for us. And we're not going to understand what he's asking of us when he commands us to love other people, including, by the way, our enemies. If this love that we're going we're gonna to be compelled to is motivated by the object of the love, as love so often is in our culture and in our, in our mindset today, then the idea of loving your enemies is absurd. It's ridiculous. It's impossible. But God's calling us to something greater. So let's get this straight from the beginning. When we're talking about love, we are not talking about God looking at us and feeling his heart go pitter-patter. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about God acting, acting in his very nature as God for our particular good, regardless of how attractive or unattractive we might be. Now, that's not very romantic, is it? That, that sort of takes all the fun out of it, unless you actually think about this and go, you know what, I'm pretty unattractive. I mean, to God? Would, would God ever look at me? Would God ever look at you and go, wow, I got to have that one? God is without need. God is without longing of that type. And so God doesn't look at us and go, that person is so amazing. I've got to have them. God looks at us and says, wow, that person is so unattractive that if I don't love them, nobody will. Isn't that romantic? <laughs> and some of you are thinking, well, guy, that just sort of takes a lot out of it. Turn in your Bibles to Romans. If you're in 1 Corinthians, go just one book back to the left to the book of Romans, chapter 5. And, I, and I'll be the first to admit that... Um, this is not going to be a feel-good, pitter-patter, a Valentine's Day kind of sermon about love. I might take a little bit of the glimmer off of it for you, but hopefully we'll get down to something that is more foundational that will sustain us better. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. See, the Bible goes to great lengths to dispel this myth that, excuse me, that somehow God decided he had to have us and he's so attracted to us. Now, this is tough. In all seriousness, difficult to preach this 
because I am not saying there is no emotional component to God's love for you. I'm not saying that God doesn't, doesn't um, long to be in right relationship with you. Um, I, I'm not saying that there's no side of this that has to do with just the, the pleasure of being sort of in the arms of one you love. I don't want to strip it of all of that, but I do want us to understand that at its foundational place, love, as God speaks of it, is not based on any of that stuff. It's based on something much deeper. While we were yet sinners, we had set ourselves up as enemies of God, and while we were yet enemies of God, he said, I will love. And to say, I will love for God in that situation is to say, I will send my son to die for them. It's the same thing. And some of you are thinking that takes all the magic out of it. But just the opposite of true is true. How great is a love that loves you even when you don't deserve it? How great is a love that loves you even when you have nothing to offer? How great is a love that loves you even when the one giving the love has no need of you? How great is a love that loves you even when you are not attractive and you have no power to make yourself attractive in his eyes? That's the love of God. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says, the greatest of these is love. And remember, God doesn't just love us in that way, but he commands us to love each other in that way. And that gets us into a whole other discussion. If love was a feeling or an emotion or, or an attraction-based thing, the way we tend to think of it, then it would be unjust for God, wouldn't it? to command us to love people. Since I can't control my feelings and I don't have much control over to whom I am attracted, if love was based on those feelings and that attraction, it would be unjust for God to command me to love other people. It would be unjust for God, in fact, to command me to love Him because I don't have control of that. And yet, He does command us to do just that, when they came to him and said, hey, tell us what the whole law really means. Sum it up for us. What did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love God. Love people. That's what he said. And he commanded us to do it. He didn't say, if you feel like it, if you feel that warm sense of attraction towards somebody, he said, love people. And he went even so far as to tell us to love our enemies. So if we're to understand godly love at all, we have to stop thinking of it as an emotional attachment that leads us to do certain things. Love is much deeper than that. Love is the things we do for the benefit of other people or for the benefit of pleasing God. It's not about their worthiness that makes us love them. It's not about uh, their attractiveness that makes us love them. It is God's love in us, poured into us, that is then poured through us to other people. So for us to be people who are loving, we better be people who are under the love of God. Amen? We, we better know what it is to experience that. But we're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves because next week is Valentine's Day, and I'm going to be talking about what it means to love one another. So we'll set that aside for now. But for today, let's think about the topic of love as it relates to God. It all really begins there. God's love is a foundation for life. Apart from this amazing 
sacrificial, gracious love of God, we would have nothing. Apart from the love of God, we would be nothing. That's why that song, Amazing Grace, he talks about the love of God, and he says, you know, I was blind, but now I see. I was, I was dead, but now I'm alive. I was lost, but now I'm found. That's the idea. Without this kind of love, we have absolutely nothing, and we are absolutely nothing. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, just a few books to the right of Romans. After Galatians and before Philippians, you find Ephesians. I want you to go to Ephesians chapter 2. And we'll take a minute and use this as a commercial. Beginning in two weeks, we're going to be studying the book of Ephesians together, and it is going to be awesome. So I want you to come and be a part of that. Ephesians chapter 2, picking it up in verse 1. And since I'm going to be preaching on this in a few weeks, I'm not going to cover it very deeply, but I do want to read it to you. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you, meaning all of us, were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. These are our harsh words. By nature, children of wrath. You were dead in your trespasses and sin. Not sick, not under the weather, dead in your trespasses and sins. By nature, children of wrath. Who is he talking about? Us. Verse 4. But, thank God for that, but God being rich in mercy because of his great what? Love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Man, that is not a flattering description that he gives of people in general, and all people specifically. He says, you were by nature children of wrath. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. There was nothing you could do to bring life to yourself. And yet God, in his great love with which he loved us, you notice that? His love with which he loved us. Love is a noun and a verb there. His love with which he loved us. You have to love someone with your love. For it to actually be love. With his great love with which he loved us, he, he set us free and gave us life. And he, he gave us all of the blessings in the heavenly places that are described here in the book of Ephesians. It's just an awesome truth. But it was not a good situation that we were in prior to that. And we were all in that situation before God gave us real life with all its joy and hope and promise. But he did act in love on our behalf. 1 John chapter 4. Go to the back of your Bible, the book of 1 John. First John chapter 4. 1 John says a lot about love. But we're going to look at verses 9 and 10 of 1 John chapter 4. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. So it, it, it went from being theoretical or distant or somehow just an idea to being actualized in our life. It was manifested in us, 
that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. What does God's love look like? It looks like sending Jesus. That's God's love. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's amazing how often when the, when the concept of the love of God is discussed in the New Testament, it is tied in with sending his son to die on the cross for us. That's what his love is. And we're told that um, in this love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Our ability to even love him, let alone one another, is utterly dependent upon him acting in his nature of, as God by loving us and sending his son. I hope you're paying attention because when it comes to loving others, this is the very model of love that we are commanded to follow. We're not allowed to just go, well, we're going to go with this other lesser kind of love. We're commanded to love. God's love is amazing. It's unprecedented. It's one of the reasons it's so hard to preach on. It's so hard to explain because there's nothing to compare it to. There's nothing like it ever anywhere. There's never been anyone so good and so loving as God who would make the kind of sacrifice out of love that he made. It's an awesome thing, God's love. But what difference does it really make in us? We talk about this love all day long, but how does it flesh out in our lives? What difference does it make? I'm not talking here about your ticket to heaven. I, that, that would be enough, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be enough if God's love was enough that he just didn't punish you the way you deserve to be punished, but instead gave you heaven? But, but let's set that aside as a given for now. I'm not just talking about a ticket to heaven. I'm talking about right here and now. How is your life different because the love of God has been poured out into your life? 1 John 4.19 says that we are able to love because he first loved us. If you are born again, it is in your spiritual DNA to love. Just uh, a couple of days ago, um, our, a bunch of our family members went to Disneyland together, and, and then my son Garrett and I went to a hockey game together. And, you know, if you go somewhere together, you have to take selfies and put them online and all that kind of stuff, right? So, so we had this selfie of Garrett and I in our Ducks jerseys at the game, and uh, it went on social media. And boy, my page just lit up with people, and everybody's talking about how much he looks like me when I was his age. And by the way, I have warned him, I told him, <laughs> you better do something, man. You better find a wife now. <laughs> it is downhill from here, I can promise you that. I used to be good looking. But everybody saw him that knew me back when I was around that age and went, wow, he looks just like you. There's a resemblance, right? Why? It's in the DNA. The poor kid inherited it, right? It's in this DNA. And by the same token, you and I have inherited the DNA of God when we were born again unto spiritual life. And it is his nature to love. So as long as the spirit is within me, love is a natural part of who I am. In fact, as a Christian, to not love is unnatural. Even though our flesh fights against it all the way, our new nature is the nature of love. The love of the Father 
is not just for us. It is in us and it pours through us to other people. And that doesn't begin, by the way, with loving your family and the people who are closest to you. It doesn't begin by loving the ones who you're most attracted to. It doesn't begin even with loving your enemies. And it certainly doesn't begin with loving yourself, contrary to a lot of popular teaching today. It begins with God loving you and therefore you loving God. It begins with that relationship. His love for us makes it possible for us to love him. So let me just ask you a question. How's that going in your life? If we're going to be honest enough and bold enough to redefine love in a more biblical way than we're used to, and we're to say that love is actually acting upon love, how's that going in your life? It's a big deal. It's a much bigger deal, honestly, than most of us ever realize. And I'm afraid that some of us have Christian, as Christians have put way too much emphasis on having the right doctrine, the right belief system, keeping the right rules and all of that kind of stuff, and not enough emphasis on loving God. I want you to go to the book of Revelation. It's the easiest one to find. It's right at the back. Book of Revelation, chapter 2. Jesus, the risen, glorified Jesus in heaven, is speaking to John in a vision, and he's giving him uh, what he should write. And here's what he says in chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you have found them to be false. In other words, Jesus is complimenting the Ephesian people. He's saying, you guys are amazing in terms of your doctrine. You, when people come in and they say something that's just slightly off of being biblically accurate, even if they call themselves apostles, you measure what they say against the word of God, and you have got your doctrine down. That's a great compliment. I hope God would say that about us. But then verse 3, he says, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Even though there's been all this trouble and all this persecution, you have hung in there and you have stayed steadfast and loyal. Wouldn't it be great for God to tell you this? To tell you he's so proud of you in terms of keeping your doctrine straight, that he's so proud of you in the way that you have endured and how faithful you have been? Continue on because verse 4 begins with the word but. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. The, the lampstand is a symbolic picture of the life of a church. He says, I'll, I'll destroy you as a church if you don't get this right. You left your first love well, you're studying doctrine and you were arguing and debating and you were making sure that everybody had all their P's and Q's just right. And in all of that, somehow Jesus says, you took your eyes off me and I ceased to be the reason for your living. You left your first love. So it's so interesting. When he says you left your first love, I feel like, oh, I should be more emotionally invested in Jesus. I should be more like 
just in awe of him and my worship should be more profound. And all of that is true. That should all be true. But how do we define love? It's not just that emotion, is it? So what does he tell them to do? Repent. What does repent mean? Turn around. Turn around from the direction you're going and go back in the direction you came from. And what does he say? Do the things you did at first. Live according to love. Stop talking about it and go live it. It's not about the outward signs of being religious. It's about a life transformed by love. We won't turn there, but in Matthew chapter 7, he talks about this very thing where the people say, you know, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we preach in your name? Didn't we do all these things? And what does Jesus say to them? I never knew you. You, you, If it's not based on my relationship of love with him, then, then it's an empty religious behavior. I'm not telling you when I say live according to love, I'm not telling you to keep more rules and do more things right. If you do more things according to God's will, it should be because you love him. That is the acting out of the love. It has to be based on him knowing you and you knowing him. I'm not talking about an emotional attachment, although that's completely appropriate. He says, love me with all of your heart, all of your mind, all your soul, all your strength. That means every fiber of your being. It's appropriate that we have emotional connection with him. But I'm talking about active, sacrificial, practical, agape love. Getting beyond our feelings. Getting down to business. I'm talking about reorienting your life and redefining success based on being a blessing to God. I know there's an emotional side to love. I'm a very emotional person. And my love for God has a very strong emotional component. But that's not what moves me to actually do something. The doing something is the love. I mean, what does Jesus command to the Ephesian church? It's to turn back and do the things that they, didn't, that they were doing at first. And some of us need to take a good long look in the mirror and ask ourselves, how are we doing with the task of loving God and loving others? Because God's doing his part on the love thing. How are we doing in our task of loving God and loving others? I challenge you to get pretty practical on this and ask yourself, when it comes to how you spend your time, do you spend your time loving? When it comes to how you use your resources, do you use your resources, your material wealth, your finances, all of those kinds of things to love? What about the things you spend your time thinking about? Is that reflective of the love of God poured out in you and through you to others? What do you care more about than anything else? How are you putting everything in your life under the lordship of Jesus Christ? Let's not pat ourselves on the back and give ourselves credit for loving God and loving others unless these practical steps are, in, are indicated in our life. What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He's saying that loving him and keeping his commandments are the same thing. They're inseparable. One of the worst things we could possibly do is to lose sight of God and his love for us. Because as soon as we lose sight of his love for us, and as soon as we stop appreciating what it means to be loved by God, it makes us susceptible to this whole worldly idea that love is all about me being a blessing to the people who make me feel the best. 
And as long as that's who we are as God's people, then this world is going to continue to shrug their shoulders and go, I don't get it. I don't see what all the fuss is about. I don't know why you're so into this whole thing about God. This is what being children of God is about. This is what we're about as Grace Fellowship. We're going to sit down in a few minutes and have this um, meeting, and we're going to talk about finances and numbers and charts and graphs and boring stuff. And, and you go, what does all that have to do with anything? It has everything to do with this. It's all about loving God and loving people so that he can change the world through us. We love because he first loved us. That is now our DNA. And there's a world out there that is waiting to see the love of God made manifest through the people of God who claim to be loved by him. The love of God is the most awesome gift available to you. Don't settle for anything less. Let's pray.